Welcome to the New Books Network. In a way, I think this also follows logically from the, the point I made right at the beginning about environmental humanities being committed to understanding environmental issues as inherently cultural and social. If we, if we do that, one of the, the logical things that, that follows from that is that these, what we've called environmental issues, become important new sites for understanding and intervening in human lives. And so the question is, how might we respond to climate change or biodiversity loss, not only in a way that gets community buy-in, which obviously is important for practical reasons, but that is genuinely consultative, that's produced in more creative, dialogic ways, but that in working through might actually help to reconfigure historical and ongoing injustices within human communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Professor Tom Van Doren. Tom Van Doren is Associate Professor and Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the Department of Gender and Culture Studies and the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney, and a professor at the Oslo School of Environmental Humanities, University of Oslo. His research is based in the broad interdisciplinary field of the environmental humanities, with particular grounding in environmental philosophy, cultural studies, and science and technology studies. His research and writing focuses on some of the many philosophical, ethical, cultural, and political issues that arise in the context of species extinctions and human entanglements with threatened species and places. He is the author of Flightways, Life and Loss at the Edge of Extinction, and co-editor of Extinction Studies, Stories of Time, Death, and Generations, both published by Columbia University Press. With Deborah Bird-Rose and Elizabeth DeLoffrey, he was the founding co-editor of the journal Environmental Humanities. Professor Van Doren's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2019's The Wake of Crows, Living and Dying in Shared Worlds, published by Columbia University Press. The Wake of Crows is an exploration of the entangled lives of humans and crows. Focusing on five key sites, Tom Van Doren asks how we might live well with crows in a changing world. He explores contemporary possibilities for shared life emerging in the context of ongoing processes of globalization, colonization, urbanization, and climate change. Moving among these diverse contexts, this book tells stories of extermination and extinction alongside fragile efforts to better understand and make room for other species. Grounded in the careful work of paying attention to particular crows and their people, The Wake of Crows is an effort to imagine and put into practice a multi-species ethics. In doing so, 
Van Doren explores some of the possibilities that still exist for living and dying well on this damaged planet. Welcome, Professor Van Doren, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. As a way to begin, I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself, both your training and the focus of your work. Thanks. Thanks very much, Mark, for having me. It's great to have a chance to talk about the book. So my research is situated in the interdisciplinary environmental humanities. So these days I call myself a a field philosopher and storyteller, and my work really focuses on extinction and and conservation and what it means, what extinction means, why it matters, uh, as well as how we might imagine and enact better possibilities for conservation and coexistence in multi-species communities. So I guess at the heart of all of that is questions of ethics and politics that I'm thinking about in this in this Crow book as, as possibilities of worlding well, of, of making worlds with crows in, in productive, creative, flourishing ways. So my, my background is in philosophy originally, uh, and I pretty early on, I guess, moved into engaging quite heavily with, with feminist STS, with cultural studies, anthropology, human geography, so very interdisciplinary. I did my PhD at the Australian National University uh, in the early 2000s in what was then the Ecological Humanities Group. And so I guess I was really inspired by a lot of the, the non-philosophers as well that I was that were, were part of that group, drawn to thinking about narrative writing, about writing in accessible and engaging ways, especially by the historians, um, drawn to doing fieldwork by the anthropologists and others. And so I guess from the beginning of my career, I've been trying to ask philosophical questions in a way that's grounded in the particular in field methods and expressed in a really accessible, engaging narrative style. Your name is associated with an academic field called extinction studies, as you mentioned. I personally wasn't familiar with that field when I read your book. And I have to say, your book was not what I was expecting. I was expecting something written more in the language of conservation biology, say. And your text is not that. Your book emerges, as you said, out of the academic humanities. It is written at least partially in the language of critical theory and informed by that perspective. Not exclusively. It's most certainly very much informed by the scientific literature as well. But there's a great deal of emphasis on uncertainty, perspectivism, situatedness, ambiguity, etc. Could you talk to us generally about the discipline of environmental humanities and what distinguishes your approach from that of, say, a conservation biology text? Yeah, great. Um, Well, the environmental humanities is really an emerging field over the last 20 years or so. I mean, obviously, in many ways, it has deeper roots, but it's something that people have been talking about and actively trying to bring together for about for about 20 years. And so at the heart of that field, I guess, is this question of what the humanities can contribute to better understanding and responding to our contemporary environmental challenges. So a big part of the answer to the question that, that the field, I think, offers is that of, of breaking down the notion of an environmental challenge as something that is somehow separable from social, cultural, political systems. So it's an engagement with these environmental questions that is from the outset attentive to, to their social and cultural dimensions, to their, their complexity. And there are all sorts of implications that, that flow from that relatively obvious, I guess, statement, questions about agency and responsibility and expertise, 
that need to be rethought when we break down this distinction between nature and culture, between environmental and, and cultural challenges. So environmental humanities, even after uh, editing a journal in the field for many years, I feel unqualified to say exactly what it is. I think it's, it's, a, it's a field that's taking form in many different ways in different parts of the world. It's in some places really an umbrella for dialogue between people in philosophy and, and literature and history. In other places, and I think Australia is a key example of this, environmental humanities has been from the outset a much more explicitly interdisciplinary field, an effort to develop new kinds of methods and approaches for um, becoming an environmental challenges that draw on a host of different disciplinary approaches. So yeah, The Wake of Crows is, is this kind of interdisciplinary environmental humanities book. It really is about exploring how humans and non-humans uh, are tangled up and at stake in, in one another. So at the broadest level, I guess, the book is an, an exploration of, of crow life in our present time, to think an effort to think about crows and what it means to live well with them in the context of extinction, of urbanisation, colonisation, globalisation. And so crows are, are obviously a really charismatic bird that many of us are, are familiar with, and whether we like them or not, find them all over the place in, in forests, on farms, in cities, but also in, uh, you know, in, in tropical environments, deserts and subarctic regions. So they're everywhere and they're often thought about as a group of species that have done really well out of this, what, what is often thought about as a, a human-dominated, human-transformed landscape. And that's certainly true of many corvids, um, but it's, it's not true of others. And there are a, a bunch of critically endangered crows that also feature in the book. So really what I, I was trying to do in this book is bring together some of those diverse crow stories, some of the critically endangered and, and the others that are thought about often as overabundant pests, some that are actively conserved and others that are actively targeted for eradication, to think about what these diverse crow stories offer us for thinking through our contemporary moment. And, and I do that in, in five different sites uh, around the world. And, and in that way, try to, try to draw out these questions of ethics about what it means to live well uh, with others on a changing planet. So to get us started on the book, the book is exclusively focused on crows. And your previous book, Flightways, Life and Loss at the Edge of Extinction, was exclusively focused on birds as well. Why birds? And in this case, why crows specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the, the answer, sadly, is sort of more accidental than anything else. It's so I started out doing, I started out working on plants actually in my PhD, but very quickly when I, when I finished that work and started moving to thinking about extinction, the first bird, uh, species that I worked on was the Indian vultures. And so in, in doing that, I'm, I'm not a biologist by training, although I, I dropped out of biology a couple of times as an undergraduate. I, I went and learned a whole lot of avian biology just to, to start thinking about the vultures in India seriously, which is one of the chapters in Flyways. And it basically took me a really long time to, to learn the, the biology that I wanted to learn to be able to think with ornithologists about the vultures. And so the book that, that I had planned, which was going to look at uh, trees and fungi and, and mammals and birds and all sorts of things, the book that I planned instead of Flightways, uh, became a book all about birds, basically because I, I, didn't have the, I felt I didn't have the time or, or the um, energy to, to go and, and learn about all of these diverse kingdoms of life 
So I sort of fell into birds and uh, that doesn't mean I, I mean, I have always loved birds and, and birds I think are fascinating to think with. Uh, and they're, they're some of the, the animals that, that most of us encounter on a day-to-day basis. So it's sort of a, one of those more uh, accidental things than, than anything else. But over the years, I guess, as I've learned more and more about them, as I've, I've been working on birds mostly for the last 12 years, I've come to appreciate more and more about them. And I guess to to get deeper and deeper into, into the, the ornithology communities, but also into fascination with avian ways of life. So in, in this case of the crow book, I, I guess I ended flightways with the Hawaiian crows. I've always been fascinated by crows for a lot of reasons. Some of them are to do, as I note in the introduction to the book, with just their, their really responsive, intelligent, social ways of life that I think are an invitation into a watchful world. I think if we take crows seriously, as I, as I say, it's really hard to, to maintain the kind of illusion of, of nature sitting quietly in the background. So that's part of the reason I got drawn to crows. But I guess uh, for me, the, the philosophical value of, of focusing in on corvids in the way that I do in the wake of crows is that it gave me an opportunity to really slow down with this genus to rather than moving from a, a between a bunch of different birds that have you know, in many ways very different ways of life, very different social and emotional and cognitive competencies. The corvids are a, a fascinating group of birds that share a lot of the, that those cognitive skills across all of the diverse landscapes that they live in. And so by just focusing the book on them, I was able to, to I think, ask deeper questions about what it really means to, to live well with these particular birds, to, to draw out those ethological, behavioural dimensions of their way of life and to really puzzle with them uh, about what it is that crows are after, what kinds of worlds crows are trying to craft and how we might do ethics, not just of crows or about crows, but but ethics with crows. The reader of your book definitely gets a sense of the intelligence and the adaptability and just the all-around character of these birds. And I do think it makes sense in this book to stick with corvids since the various corvid species share a decent amount in common. And so by sticking with corvids, what this allows is for you to look at similar birds across a diverse range of locations and situations and see how similar birds are responding to diverse environments and diverse challenges. Mm, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Very well put. (laughs) But mostly they're just intelligent and interesting, and you don't really need any any more reason than that. (laughs) No, that's true. I think it would be helpful now to give the listener a sense of the structure of your book, which will also give them a sense of your approach to the subject matter. The form your book takes encodes a lot of what you're trying to do in it. The book is comprised of five substantive chapters and five short vignettes. The vignettes draw from research in behavioral biology to shed light on various aspects of crow behavior and intelligence. But the real substance of your book is in the long chapters. Each long chapter takes place, as you noted, in a specific location. Brisbane, Australia, the Big Island, Hawaii, Rotterdam, the Netherlands, the Mojave Desert, 
the United States, and Rota, the Mariana Islands. In each case, we encounter crows and conflict among humans as to how to respond to the crows. And to me, your book is really more about this, the the human politics around questions of how to deal with animals and endangered species. Could you talk to us briefly about the structure of your book, why you took the approach you did of setting each chapter in a specific location, and what light that might shed on your general approach to crows and extinction studies? Yeah, sure. So I, I guess at the heart of the book is this effort to think with the particular. So, and, and that ties back to a lot of what we've already been speaking about, but doing a kind of field philosophy. So not asking uh, questions about living with crows in the abstract that are supposed to apply to all crows in all places, but really drawing out what the challenges and possibilities are for living with, with these crows in this place. So I, I don't know that the term case study is, is a particularly helpful one. I think it has too much of a sense of, of applying insights in, in interchangeable sites. And that's not really what I'm trying to do. Instead, instead, I think about each of these five main sites in the book as, as worldings or storyings. So they're sites um, of emergent theorization through thick description. So, so they're, they're particular places, obviously, that you, you've mentioned. This, but they're places that are still in process, where things are still being worked out for the most part. And so I understand my interventions as, as an effort to tell stories about these places that might in some way, even if in a very small way, play a part in shaping what becomes in these places. So, yeah, each of the, the particular human crow encounters is absolutely matters for the book. It's not a... They can't be interchanged, uh, I guess, with with other kinds of places, but the, the particular approach to ethics that I'm developing and advocating for in each site emerges out of the complexity of shared lives there. In part, I guess I selected these different sites to give a sense of the diversity of challenges and opportunities. Some of them are critically endangered crows. Some of them are considered to be overabundant crows that are being targeted. I also selected the, the different sites in an effort to take up particular philosophical questions, ethical questions. So each chapter has a, a key word, and I guess that's a particularly important part of the structure of the book as well. So the five key words for the book are community, inheritance, hospitality, recognition, and hope. And so in part, I chose these particular sites because I, I thought that the that they would be helpful for thinking these through these particular terms. Uh, and in part, I chose the terms because they were helpful for thinking through these particular sites. So it was a, a kind of dialogical approach. But each of those five key words is, is one that has a, a literature in biology, um, but also a literature in the humanities. And so my effort to, to do ethics in the book is to, to try and draw those biological and philosophical humanities literatures into conversation and to do that in a particular site through field research and interviews. And, and in that way to really explore what light those concepts might shed on, on living well together, how con a concept like hospitality might be stretched or redone when, when we bring together the literature on genetic inheritance with that of uh, questions around cultural inheritance and, and tradition and community. And so in bringing those into dialogue to think about multi-species communities, what that might enable. 
So I guess one of the, the key aspects of, of that, of thinking with these keywords, is an effort to ask, as I mentioned a moment ago, how, how might crows themselves do ethics? How do, how do crows maybe hope or practice recognition or uh, enact community in their own particular kinds of ways? And, and are those meaningful questions? And, and what might asking them allow us to, to see and do with others? So, so just to give an example, I guess in the, in the Mariana Islands, the last chapter in the book focuses on that, that critically endangered island crow. And that was a, a case where some local Chamorro people told me about crows caching away almonds, so hiding almonds and coming back for them later. And that led me on to thinking and visiting actually some behavioural lab laboratories in, in Cambridge where they were actually thinking with other corvids about this caching behaviour and thinking about what it reveals about how these birds make sense of the future, uh, how they plan for the future, how they hide foods away and come back for them. And so, so that really interesting research in Cambridge has fleshed out this notion of prospective cognition, that the corvids are amongst those animals that do have a sense of the future and that are working towards particular kinds of futures. And so taking that insight back to the Mariana Islands that enabled me to think about hope in really different kinds of ways in the islands. So it's not just about human hopes at work in the islands, hopes for you know, better livelihood or, and um, sovereignty and a whole lot of other things, um, but also about the, the way that, crow, that crows themselves might be working towards particular futures in a way that we might think about as, as hopeful. So really engaging with that uh, ethological literature through those keywords is, I guess, a, a key aspect of what I think is interesting about the book, what excited me about writing the book anyway. I think it was in the context of your writing on the provisioning behavior in the Rota Mariana Islands chapter that you ruminate on whether or not it's possible that these birds are aware of the fact that their populations are in decline. And if it's possible that they have some sense of the existential danger of their situation. You write, uh, you write, quote, might they notice and even mourn their own dwindling numbers, the deaths of their kin, the scarcity of a favorite food tree, end quote. It's a really moving passage in your book. I know that it's just speculation, but the very possibility that that could be real is moving and should motivate people to think seriously on this matter and what effect our behavior is having on sentient beings capable of love and sorrow and fear. So I found that just, just one of many powerful moments in your book. I was wondering next if you could talk us through a couple of the sites that your book focuses on. They're all fascinating, and we could cover any, any of them. But in trying to winnow the list down to two that were sort of representative and hit on important themes, I thought we could focus on the Hawaii and Rotterdam chapters. To begin with Hawaii, could you describe for us the situation that the crows and forests find themselves in there, the background of colonization, the cow forest reserve proposal and the varying responses to it to the degree possible could you walk us through the the general narrative of the chapter 
you don't have to get into all the specifics. Obviously, that that would be impossible. But I would love it if you could give the listener a sense of your general approach to the subject matter. Yeah, great. Um, well, yeah, this is one of the chapters, as I said, that sort of drew drew me into thinking about crows or one of the, the examples, the Hawaiian crow or the alala, as it's called in, in Hawaiian. It's a critically endangered crow. There were only a handful of, of birds left in the early 2000s, and they were all brought into captivity. And so I've written about the, these birds before in a, in a bunch of different places. And in this chapter, I really wanted to focus on their release, which was which was just starting to happen as I was, well, actually, as I was finishing writing the chapter. And, and a lot of the work I did was really in the lead up, looking at the planning and the, the controversies over the planned release. And so, yeah, as, as you mentioned, the, the Ka'u Forest Reserve on the Big Island was at the time and, and the, the key site that people were talking about as a release site. Uh, and it's still one of the really important long-term plans. It's a, um, a big area, the biggest area that they might be able to be released into on the Big Island. But doing that would have, would require a big area of that forest to, of that forest reserve to be fenced and for the pigs, especially within there, uh, within that area, to be to be killed, and that's really about restoring the forest that has become so degraded over the years by a whole whole range of different factors. But one of them is certainly the pigs and other ungulates who who graze down the forest. So conservationists have wanted to do that, and there's been a lot of opposition, mostly from from pig hunters, uh, about basically removing a large area of land that they might that they would no longer be able to hunt in. And so many of those hunters on, on the big island, especially in Kau, are, um, are Kanaka Māori, they're, they're native Hawaiian people. And so this, the, this discussion, this controversy really became bound up, as so many controversies over conservation and land in Hawaii are, for very good reasons, bound up with these, this history of colonisation, with the, the ongoing mistrust of the federal government especially, but, but also the state government, and of, of their right to intervene in local people's lives, to, to manage the landscape. Uh, and in this case, their, their right to interrupt what is understood by many as a traditional cultural practice of pig hunting. So really the, the analysis in the chapter centres on, on inheritance as a way into thinking about this, these challenges, on the, the rich diversities, whether they are cultural diversities, of you know, traditional practices like hunting, um, Hawaiian language, but also the biological diversity of this place of the, the crows themselves, but also the broader forest ecosystems that the crows are thought to have played a really important role in sustaining the, the so many birds have already been lost in Hawaii and Balala is, is the largest remaining fruit and seed eating bird. And so it's thought to play an important role in, in propagating endangered plant species. So keeping the alala in the forest or getting them back into the forest is thought to be really important for, for the whole ecosystem on some level as well. So there are a whole lot of these cultural and biological diversities at stake in this debate. And so coming at it through the, the lens of inheritance really, I think, opens up this question of, of what do we hold on to and, and what do we allow to slip away? And how do we take up those challenges in the context of ongoing extinction and also colonization. And so what does is, what is conservation as a multifaceted, always compromised work of inheritance look like? So I think that the chapter is, in a way, it's a, it's a, a nice example of 
the kind of field philosophy approach that's at the heart of a lot of my work. It's thinking with others as philosophers, people who I'm engaging with in the field, also thinking with crows and other non-humans and taking their ideas seriously, trying to draw them into conceptual dialogue with, with philosophy and with other kinds of insights. So in the case of the Hawaiian crow, the alala, the Hanakialani Springer, who's a kapuna or elder, was for me really, well, she is integral to that, to the chapter and the story that I'm trying to tell there. And in particular, this notion of herself as, as a citizen of the land, which is how she thinks through these questions of, of how to live with the, the competing demands of a complex history and present of colonisation and biodiversity loss and, and how she imagines doing that kind of inheritance work well. So, yeah, that's really what I'm, I'm up to in that, that chapter and it's um, drawing together a bunch of different conceptual literatures from biology and the humanities around inheritance but also drawing them into dialogue in this particular place. It engages with the human side of these questions in a way that I think some of the more purely ecological texts do not. And you need that other engagement as well, because these things take place in the vicinity of humans. And it is the humans who have all the power in these situations. And so if you don't factor in the human response into your intervention, you run into problems. For example, one of the many things your book brings up is the question of, in Hawaii, when these birds are released, the response of local landholders. You write, quote, the birds' movements through the forest become suspect as hunters and landholders fear that each time Alala, Alala is the Hawaiian crow, that each time Alala move beyond the fenced area, especially if they are nesting, the fence will expand with them. And so the Alala is imagined as a Trojan horse whose conservation facilitates further loss of land and rights. For some, they are not a biological inheritance to be valued and cherished, but a symbol and a powerful material enabler of a broader colonizing process, a broader fracturing of Kanaka, Kanaka means native Hawaiian, a broader fracturing of Kanaka inheritances, end quote. And so there are questions that arise on the ground at the site of these interventions as the experiments unfold that may not dawn on people who are thinking more abstractly in purely ecological terms. And I think that your book does a really wonderful job of, of making that vivid and illustrating how these things unfold, how these complexifying factors enter in, in real time, in the vicinity of humans. Yeah, yeah, great. I mean, I think that is the, the real takeaway that, I, that I've had from doing this kind of fieldwork, from, from becoming a philosopher who does fieldwork, is that so many of the questions that we, we want to ask in the abstract often are so much better asked or so much more complexly asked in a way that, that really takes that the, those histories, uh, those competing ideas and, and understandings and values seriously and in, in their diversity, not in some kind of abstract way that is captured through a survey, maybe. Next, let's move on to Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Can you describe for us the situation that the house crows there find themselves in, the human response to them, and the relevance of the nearby port of Rotterdam? As with the last question, 
Could you try to walk us through the, the general narrative of the chapter so the reader can see your specific approach? Yeah, so this chapter is about a handful of, of house crows uh, living in, in the little town of Hook van Holland in the Netherlands uh, who arrived in, in the mid-1990s. And most people thought when they arrived that they wouldn't survive the, the winters. They're not a, a crow that's normally found in, in these kinds of cold climates. But they slowly bred up over about the next 20 years to, to become about 40 birds. And it's thought that they, they probably stowed away on a container ship. And that's how they made their way to Europe, uh, into the port of Rotterdam, which is just a, across the water from Hoek van Hond. Um, and, sorry, and, sorry to interrupt, but I get the impression from your book that that's not uncommon, that creatures fairly regularly accidentally repatriate, if I could use that term, and that that's a significant part, in fact, of the movement of invasive species is accidentally on shipping liners, so not just individuals intentionally or perhaps surreptitiously transporting species across continents, but accidentally on shipping liners. So that's kind of baked into global trade. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, that's certainly the case, and, and in a whole range of different ways. I mean, obviously, people have been deliberately moving species around in all sorts of disastrous ways and and potentially creative and, and interesting ways for a long time. But then there are all of these other more, more stowaways who are, who are stowed away within cargo a lot of the time. They can be stowed away within bilge water and things on ships, and, and that's certainly caused many uh, issues around the world uh, or they can be like these crows who, who most likely just sort of would have flown around uh, on the deck of the ship most likely um, these are big ships and, and would have spent you know however many weeks or months riding around and there's some suggestion and I can't recall now if I go into this in the book but there has been some suggestion that the birds might actually crows in particular might be fed especially by some sea seafaring folks especially from India um, who see them as, a, as an emissary, a go-between with the, with the dead. And so they are a respected bird. And so the fact that they might be being provisioned with a bit of food by some of the, the, the um, staff on these ships might, might enable them to travel around a bit more frequently with ships. But however it happened, yeah, they, they came, we think, to Europe, um, to the port of Rotterdam, which is Europe's largest port on container ships. So it wasn't a deliberate introduction and yet, here they are. And so the, the, the chapter is really an effort to think about the decision and the subsequent efforts to eradicate these birds, which the, the Dutch government became worried that they might spread out across Europe potentially. They might become pests. They might displace other corvids and, and other birds altogether. So really, I'm, yeah, the, the analysis in the chapter centres on on this site, on thinking about these birds in this place and trying to make sense of those worries that, that this tiny little group of birds might might impact negatively on the environment and, and how to make sense of that in the shadow of this massive port, which is, of course, not just about shipping. It's also one of the largest refinery and chemical production facilities in the world. And it's not only you know, the, the, the current facility, but it's a space that's in the midst of a, a huge expansion to, to triple its capacity. So I guess it's visiting the site. And, and in this case, it was... It was really, yeah, actually the, the physical presence of the port when I, which I didn't realize when all the way, it was as big as it was, and went all the way to to the coast past Hook Van Holland all the way along the, the river. 
And so when I actually got there and started traveling around looking for, for this handful of crows in amongst all of the other corvids, I was just so struck by this industrial landscape that is part of the, the, the transformation of our contemporary world. And I think about the port in this chapter as, as an engine of the Anthropocene. It's really driving these processes of environmental and broader transformation and, and trying, to, trying to make sense of the, the perceived threat of these crows without dismissing it, but, but in light of that kind of those, those other impacts that get often backgrounded or separated out as a different kind of challenge. So the chapter argues that there are, there are dynamics of, of mastery and appropriation of the earth that underlie these efforts to control others, to see only the impacts of the crows, to separate out these kinds of issues and respond, really respond only to one of them or certainly to respond separately to them. Um, so I'm trying to, in this chapter, explore these kinds of assumptions about the place of the human on the planet through this lens of the Anthropocene in a way that challenges the kind of techno-optimist response to the Anthropocene story and, and sees it as, as being centred also on uh, in this, this very familiar kind of mastery and appropriation of the globe. So, yeah, I guess the, the chapter is a, another engagement with the Anthropocene. Perhaps there have been too many, but it's, it's my own effort to to explore um, what other kinds of responses to the Anthropocene become visible outside of these logics of appropriation and entitlement, uh, logics that I think end up excluding and justifying the exclusion, not only of a whole lot of non-humans like, like these crows, but also many human communities too. I believe that the focus environmental humanities brings to marginalized peoples is among the most valuable of its contributions. You write, quote, scholars in the environmental humanities insist that the ways in which human lives have been included within environmental policy and decision-making, approaches that have drawn in large part on economics and cognitive psychology, have often wrongly depicted people as simply rational decision-makers whose attitudes, behaviors, and choices might be moderated effectively through education campaigns, and market mechanisms like green taxes, end quote. But contrary to this somewhat simplistic approach of some decision makers, you contrast what the environmental humanities brings to the table, quote, alongside providing a better picture of who people are and how they live, the environmental humanities approach works against the problematic homogenization of humanity, paying attention to the ways in which cultural and historical difference, as well as the specificity of the social, economic, and infrastructural networks we inhabit, produce very different forms of both accountability and vulnerability, end quote. This to me seems really crucial, and it is almost certainly true that the sciences often are not really focusing on this aspect. As is so often the case, it comes down to winning over hearts and minds. And that often comes down to treating people fairly and with dignity. And if people don't feel that they're being treated equitably and fairly, which currently many do not and are not, if, if they don't feel that they're being heard, they can only be expected to push back against projects that appear to be being implemented from above by outsiders. So 
Would you talk to us quickly, specifically about the importance of incorporating marginalized peoples and voices in our environmental deliberations and work? Yeah, thanks for raising that. I think that's, you're right, that's one of the things that the environmental humanities is really trying to do, and, and as are a bunch of other dis- other disciplines, I think, but, but that aren't always done very well in the, the, the more boots-on-the-ground conservation practice world. So it, it is to, to draw out those, how these uh, cultural differences really make a difference, but also how people act in the world in a way that is not just about you know, maximising economic self-interest, but, but is about the, the cultural histories that they bring with them. And one of the, the key examples in the book that really mattered for me in, in doing this kind of thinking was the one that we've already mentioned the, the, with the, the Hawaiian crow, the alala. I guess in a way, I think I didn't, I didn't do this as well as I could have in flyaways. And, and the, the sort of chapter in, if, you, if I compare in my mind the chapter about the alala in flyaways and, and the chapter about the same bird in, in the wake of crows, they're very different chapters. And I think that is partly the result of, of me coming to, to, I mean, I think I had, had always appreciated the importance of these, these kinds of differences, but I hadn't been very good at grappling with them. And that's certainly something I'm still still learning about. But I I think the, the, the chapter on the Alala in this book is really trying to grapple with this, I guess, an idea that is, was summed up most succinctly for me by one of the conservationists I talked to who, who explained to me that to be in support of the Cove Forest Reserve plan, the plan to release the Alala and fence the area, was to be for the overthrow, for the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy and, and the subsequent colonisation of Hawaii. That, that that is how the Kauai Forest Reserve Plan was being received by people in the local community. That it was it was that divisive, but also that it, that it was that directly tied to this history of colonisation. And I think that probably to anyone who's worked in Hawaii on environmental issues, that's a a, a very obvious statement. And now and now that I've spent many more years working in Hawaii, I appreciate the the obviousness of it. But at the time, you know, being new to working in Hawaii. That that really struck me that that these things really couldn't be separated out at all, and and that we really needed to grapple with that history and, and that ongoing reality of colonization in Hawaii to understand something like this this conservation plan for the Alala. That the people obviously come to these things with their own histories, their own inheritances. They they bring those with them. They're also impacted so differently by not just the extinction, the loss of a species that might be, you know, a kin, a kinship significant for, for their interspecies kinships, might be significant for their livelihoods, but they're also impacted on very differently by conservation efforts that might impact on, on livelihood or on traditional cultural practices. So really trying to tease out how these processes of extinction and colonisation matter differently for local communities, how they're, they're differently implicated, differently responsible uh, and and what those kinds of thicker engagements with these stories might open up, that I think is is really important work. And I think it's work the conservation community is being forced in some ways to get better at. But it, it's there's a lot of of catching up to do. So in a way, I think this also follows logically from the the point I made right at the beginning about environmental humanities being committed to understanding environmental issues as inherently cultural and social. If we, if we do that, one of the, the logical things that, that follows from that is that these 
what we've called environmental issues become important new sites for understanding and intervening in human lives. And so the question is, how might we respond to, to climate change or biodiversity loss, not only in a way that gets community buy-in, um, which obviously is important for practical reasons, but that is genuinely consultative, that's pr produced in more sort of creative, dialogic ways, but that in working through might actually help to reconfigure historical and ongoing injustices within human communities. So by understanding these things as thoroughly tangled up with one another, they, they not only become more complex, they also become more interesting and powerful sites for intervening into what's possible. The situation on the ground is always going to be complex, but it's important that someone engages with that complexity. And I do think that often scientists are asking different questions, important questions that you yourself engage with in this book, but separate from engaging with the nuance and complexity of the specifics of each locality or individual habit or local human community. Humans are too powerful with too much destructive potential to be ignored in any animal intervention. The human component is simply a reality that has to be dealt with on the ground where these interventions are being staged, separately from broader ecological concerns. And I think it's important work that you're doing and that the environmental humanities are doing, and your book makes a good case of that. And I think conservationists would benefit from, from listening. I thought that we could end with you walking us through your vision of a multi-species ethics. You write, quote, a multi-species ethics is one that takes seriously the fact that all life, including human life, occurs within fundamental and constitutive relationships with other kinds of beings, living and not. Paying attention to a multiplicity of worlds means recognizing that non-humans are not simply resources to be conserved or abandoned, inherited or cast aside on the basis of whether current generations of humans happen to want them around. Their own ongoing dramas, as well as those of the many other forms of life that have already made and might yet still make worlds with them, demand our respect and gratitude, end quote. Could you talk a bit more about this? What would a multi-species ethics look like? And perhaps what steps do you think we could take to move in that direction? Yeah, great. It's really nice to come to this question at the end. I'm, I'm often asked this as the, as the first question. And, I, and in a way, I think that this really is the key goal of, of the book is, is thinking, is trying to develop or think through the possibilities, some of the possibilities for a multi-species ethics. But coming to it at the end like this, I think, We've already laid out a lot of the foundation in a way that will hopefully make the concept make a bit more sense because I think there's a fair bit going on in in doing multi-species ethics. And on one level, it, it might be summed up simply as, as what does ethics look like if we take seriously the, the fundamentally multi-species character of the world, as, as you just mentioned. But what does it actually look like to take seriously the multi-species character of the world? What does that involve? And I think that's a, that's a big, difficult question. And so some of what we've covered already, I think, touches on that. So I'll try and just pull some of those threads together. I guess I'd, I'd also say it's, it's very different to a lot of other approaches to ethics that float around in this area. And I, 
I'm, I'm more and more aware as I go on that, um, that having been trained as a philosopher originally, I, I keep coming back to thinking about my work in, in relationship with philosophy, but actually most of the people I'm speaking to are not philosophers. And so the, the, this framing perhaps doesn't make as much sense to them, but there is a tendency, at least in a lot of more philosophical approaches to ethics, to separate out a lot of these questions. So we get animal ethics, we get environmental ethics, we get a whole host of different approaches to thinking about into human ethics. But very rarely do we get those kinds of things, those, those three, if you like, different approaches, not to mention you know, plant ethics and things, pulled together to, to ask what, how do we actually adjudicate, not that our role is to adjudicate, but how do we think well within a set of nested and competing obligations. If, if we take seriously the fact that we might have, and I think we do have, obligations to, to treat other animals well, to treat, to, to hold on to species if we can, to acknowledge histories of colonisation and be, to be mindful of people's livelihoods. And uh, if we take all of those things seriously, and they're often in conflict with one another, what does ethics actually look like? And some people are now thinking about this, some of my colleagues at the University of Sydney and in other places as, as multi, questions of multi-species justice. I think about them as multi-species ethics, but I think it's, it's, it's largely the same, kind of, the same kind of effort to grapple with those competing, if you like, often competing, some, not always, uh, agendas. And so the approach that I develop in this book is, is one that is inspired by my work that's really foregrounded the violence of one-size-fits-all abstract ethical systems. And so is about, as we've talked about, is about a kind of emergent ethics that tries to respond to the thick particularity of the situation. So what does it look like to, to live and die well with these crows in this place and time and, and with all of the others, the human and non-human others that, that are implicated in that question? And this is where I think the term multi-species really matters for me. And it's maybe one of the, the aspects of that term that isn't, I think, drawn out often, often enough. But for me, the multi really matters here. Um, and for the, the multi and multi-species is, is about taking seriously the multiplicity of the world, of, of diverse ways of being, whether they're human or non-human, and, and attending to them and figuring out how to live well with them. And so there's a kind of ethos for me that's in this multi-species ethics about that is about multiplicity it's about multiplying voices and differences and trying to to bring as much of that complexity into the story to hold on to as much of as many of these differences as we can to to make room for them in a way that i think about as a kind of situated pluralism in, in chapter one of the book and so that's that's really i guess one of the core commitments and then and then how to do that with multiplicity which is Again, another thing that I think we find really challenging, there's a tendency to, to try and just multiply voices and to see that as itself a kind of, a kind of ethical response. And I, I'm really critical of that in the book. And I think, I think what, what is really demanded of us in grappling with multiplicity is to find a way through that multiplicity, not just to make a mess by, by bringing diversity in, but bringing in all of these different voices but to try and find a way to live well in, that acknowledges the fact that all of these things can't always exist well in the world together and that it isn't ultimately up to any one of us to decide once and for all what that looks like so i guess that 
given that the book is focused on on crows, my effort in here is really to think about what does it mean to live well with crows. And I think the example I've already given about hope and prospective cognition um, with the, the Mariana crows is one example of the kind of thickness of crow lifeways that I'm trying to draw in. But there are many others in the book. And another one that jumps out is the example about the, the Banteng, which is a, a big kind of ungulate cow creature, um, and the, the Teresian crows and the and the work that's been done to show that, that shows that these crows are have struck up a really interesting mutualism with these animals where the, the, the Banteng lie down and the crows go in under their legs and remove their ticks. Um, and so I'm thinking about what this, this kind of example might indicate. Might it show that crows, for example, are, are making room for others, uh, not for ticks in this case, but for Banteng, are adaptively creating new possibilities for life together. And so if we, if we take those kinds of possibilities seriously, what new, new challenges, but, but also new uh, opportunities are opened up by the, the particular cognitive, social and emotional lives of Corbett's. And so the multi-species ethics that I'm working towards in this book is, is, a, is a thoroughly particular one, not only in that in the, the, the answers or the, the responses arrived to in a particular site might not readily be applied elsewhere, but that a lot of the ways in which what it means to live well with a crow might not be in any way helpful for what it means to live well with a fish or a snail. And so I think it's a, it's a, a process of, of figuring out in each case what it means to live well with others and re- really taking them seriously in a granular way. And, and as a result, not, as I said at the outset, not doing an ethics of crows, um, but an ethics with them, um, asking, are crows themselves doing it? And what, what does that mean? And so for, in the book, I take that, up, that question up, as, are crows doing ethics as a question of whether and in what ways crows are taking up the task more or less intentionally, thoughtfully, generously of making worlds with others? What kinds of worlds are they trying to make with others? And how might we be responsive to that? So yeah, it's a, and I guess that it becomes incredibly complicated, I guess, very, very quickly when we try to draw all of that kind of understanding of, of crows, practices of worlding into dialogue with the, the questions we've already touched on about the diversity of human voices and livelihoods and histories of colonisation and so on that are, are layered into these stories as well. And then another whole aspect of the story that we haven't really touched on are all of the other non-human lives that are, that are drawn into these contestations and in the book there there are a few central examples but for example but one of the key ones is is the desert tortoises that i talk about in the mojave desert chapter where these are are tortoises that are potentially being partially driven to extinction by the ravens so of course they are deeply implicated in these histories and stories as well so the multi-species approaches to to ethics is is trying to, to hold all of that multiplicity in the frame to do it justice in some way and to, to muddle through, I guess, in a way that, that, that takes it all seriously and figures and, and makes a stand for, for some kinds of possibilities and not others, but, but makes a stand in a way that is, and this is, I guess, again, a central theme of the book, that is about an ongoing process of, of learning, of, 
revision of attending to to others where there aren't any final answers there's just an, e an effort to multiply perspectives on what will count as a better world for whom uh, while owning up to the fact that there's never a situation in which everyone wins and yet actions still do have to be taken so there's a it's a kind of humble engaged ongoing empirically rich open-ended ethical process uh, and it's one that is for the, for all of those reasons in my work at least intimately tied to this practice of storytelling of of muddling through all of that complexity in a way that tries to do it justice and arrive at some very imperfect propositions for how we might go on together. One quick point that I would just like to highlight. One can imagine more global problems, and I don't mean global crossing the entire earth, problems too big for an individual person to resolve. So say, for example, that you have a city that's draining a lake. And so one can ask, what can the city do to stop the draining of this lake before it disappears and all the creatures in it die? That may be difficult for an individual to respond to or to deal with. But one can also imagine more local engagements on the individual level. And one of the things I think that your book does really beautifully is it shows that not only do crows perhaps have their own ethics, but they also potentially have their own forms of communication with humans. I, I mean that literally. Individual crows may be trying to communicate with individual humans. I'm, I'm thinking of one example. It's in your Brisbane chapter and concerns the fact that recently crows have begun constructing nests on human-made buildings and have begun swooping down at humans who come too close, targeting the humans who they perceive to be threatening during the nesting season. In the example in the book, I'm pretty sure one of the crows had set up a nest near the front door of a building. And the people that worked in that building in response began using the back door in respect that the crow had communicated to them that the front door was its space where it had a nest. So what's crucial here, I think, is the idea that on an individual level, we, each of us, can slow down and listen and open up a, a personal engagement with the creatures that are in our vicinity, that we share our space with, and open ourselves up to listening, to seeing if there is anything they are trying to communicate to us that we can acknowledge and respect and adapt to and grant to them. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really nice example. I think a lot of the a lot of the examples in the book are that, that kind of, in a way, small scale response to to how to live well. But they're 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 thinking through how we might at, at, attend to to crows, figure out what it is that they're after, act responsively, and yeah, that's a, it often ends up taking really really local. Uh, locally specific forms and I guess one of the real challenges of the book I mean I say in the somewhere in the book I can't remember where now the book is not about um, not about the local or the global it's a really rather an effort to subvert scale to to think into big issues through these particular sites and so 
in that way, I think these these stories are trying to give us a purchase on modes of understanding and response that at least have a chance of of working well, of being responsive and accountable in a way that doesn't apply a, a, a top down logic that can be then you know easily shifted from here to over there. What works for these Brisbane crows might not work in another context, you know, because of different different interspecies dynamics, different building architecture, whatever it might be. There are there are different challenges that arise here, and so the kind of ethics that I'm interested in is not is not sort of not particular in the sense that it has nothing to say to anything else, but particular in the sense that we that it is mindful that that translation and travel are always labour. That we, we have to ask the question about how this kind of approach might be helpful over here, or if it might be helpful over here, or if it might be helpful with this other kind of species, and then do the work of of relentlessly. Here I'm riffing on Haraway in, in much of the book, um, attending to the particular of, of, of asking what is different here uh, and what differences do those um, differences make. Uh, so it's something that I struggle with and something that you and I have talked about before is this question of the, the local versus the global. And, and I guess I'm, I'm con- I continue to come back to a, a concern about the violence of, of one-size-fits-all top-down approaches and to, to try to find ways to think through the particular that at least speak to these bigger questions? Without question, I think what we need sooner than later is a transformation in people's empathy towards others, human and non-human. And I think one of the things that your book does is in situating us in specific locations and in showing us multiple perspectives is it opens up a space for that empathy. It shows people how to be empathetic among others, human and non-human. And I think that's important work. Professor Van Doren, thank you so much. We've already taken up a lot of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, um, so many things. So my challenge is actually finding time to work on each of the many things that I've committed to. But one of the things that I've been doing a lot more of lately is working on community storytelling projects. So I'm working on about four of those in in different parts of the world at the moment, looking at issues from extinction to bushfires and a a development proposal around a dam and and another big one on on urban wildlife uh, interactions and, and I guess try and create spaces for community members to tell their own stories in their own ways about their interactions with the environment. And, and part of my work in that is, is thinking through how to do that well, how to work with community voices and community stories in a way that might actually achieve effective change. And then I guess the, the other biggest thing that I'm just finishing work on now is another book, this one on the many endangered land snails of Hawaii. So back to Hawaii, but in this case, I guess zooming in even more and moving away from the birds to to think about, well, there are many, many species of snails in Hawaii, but thinking about how they're tangled up again in these histories of, of colonization, militarism, and so on in, in the Hawaiian islands and, and telling those uh, snail stories, this time in an effort to reach a, a much broader audience. So this is my first effort to write a book for a a general readership. 
and really, I guess, at the, at the heart of the book, there's some of the themes that have been throughout a lot of my work over the last 10 years. But I guess the big central question is, is how might taking these particular snails again in this particular place seriously help us to rethink and to engage differently with our escalating global extinction crisis? In terms of the first thing you mentioned, the helping others tell their stories, there's a number of examples along those lines in your book that I, I really would have liked to have gotten to. One of them that I'll just mention is Trixie, the educator, who was teaching a classroom how to build birds' nests. But because crows only have their beak to work with, she only allows her students to use their thumb and index finger. Yeah, yeah. And there are a number of examples like this individual local interventions that are really rewarding and they show human engagement with the natural world around them. I would have loved to have gotten more of those wonderful stories into our discussion. The listener will have to read the book to hear them, but it really does sound like a wonderful project and snails are amazing. So I'm definitely going to want to talk to you about that book when it's available. Great. Thank you, Mark. That's lovely. Professor Van Doren, your book is a wonderful exploration of this important and fascinating field. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Max. Same to you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Professor Tom Van Doren about his 2019 book, The Wake of Crows, Living and Dying in Shared Worlds. It's a wonderful book, a compassionate and empathetic book, a fascinating and delightful book, and an important one. I hope you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy. And you've been listening to the New Books in Animal Studies special series of the New Books Network. See you next time.